Heavenly Father, you are the great God. You are the only God. You are the true God. From you proceeds everything that is beautiful, everything that is good, everything that is true. You are patient and kind and merciful. You're steadfast in your love. Your providence rules over all of creation from the highest mountaintops to the tiniest blade of grass. Every beating heart owes its life to you. And we praise you that you have made us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image, that you've expressed your love for unworthy sinners like us in your son Jesus Christ who became true man and who shed his blood and died that we might be redeemed and saved and forgiven for our rebellion against you. And Lord, we give you thanks for who you are and for everything that you have done. And we ask that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that your spirit would move and minister to our hearts. Lord, that we would be challenged to be more humble and encouraged to be more gracious, that we would be just stricken by your grace and goodness to us. Lord, would you help us to be attentive and to receive the word with joyful hearts that we might love you more and know you more. In Christ's name, amen. Well, hopefully you're in First uh, Peter chapter 4 with me. Maybe you noticed that last week uh, my family was not here. Maybe you didn't notice, maybe you didn't care. That's fine too. But we were not here, and the reason is we were picking our children up from a camp that they attended in the Midwest. And uh, my kids got to go to this camp with... Uh, a bunch of my nieces and nephews, their cousins. And when we had finished picking them up from camp, we went and spent a couple of days uh, with my family, my parents, and my brothers. And they have this kind of sweet gig where in this suburban town, my parents live in this house, my younger brother lives right next door, and my older brother lives just a couple of blocks away. And they're so close, in fact, that when we wanted to go over to my older brother's house, we would just walk um, because it was within walking distance with no problem. And so at one point, my oldest daughter, Karis, who's 12, she came to me while I was doing something and she said, uh, hey, can I walk over to Uncle Jeremy's house? And I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. She, she said, I don't know exactly how to get there. And I said, okay, no problem. I'll make you a little map. And I drew her a map with some very simple directions. It's not difficult. You walk down the street that my parents' house is on and you turn left. And then at the next T, you turn right. And then you go down two streets and you turn left and you're there. Very simple, like a four-minute walk. But I found myself thinking as I handed her this map in these directions, man, if she messes up even one of these turns and goes the wrong direction, she doesn't have a cell phone, she doesn't, she's not familiar with the area, like, she is lost and gone, and I don't know how we'll find her. Because that's the nature of directions, isn't it? If you need to reach a destination that is to your left, you cannot get there by going to your right. One direction excludes the other direction. 
And if you need to end in a location that's to the south, you'll never make it there by going north. Now, I understand the earth is round. Don't give me that. You get the point. (laughs) And the same is true with righteousness and with holiness. If your desire is to go in the direction of Jesus and be like him, you'll never get there by turning towards sin. If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you cannot arrive there by walking the path of worldliness. You cannot be obedient to the will of God and at the same time live under the passions of the sinful flesh. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is to make a hard right turn when the entire world is screaming at you, go left, go left, go left. To be a Christian is to go directly north when all the masses of people are streaming to the south. You see? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, even though I know you guys dealt with the first couple of verses last week. The Apostle Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the very same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." Now, again, I know last week Gabe preached on verses 1 through 2, so I'm going to focus on verses 3 through 6, but I just want you to look at verse 2 because I think it's essential to kind of understand uh, one of my key points here. Here are the two choices presented to each of us. We can either live for the flesh, those sinful human passions that entice us and tempt us, Or we can live according to the will of God, which has been clearly revealed to us in the scriptures. But it's an either-or choice, my friends. It is not a both-and. You cannot have a little bit of one and a little bit of other. You cannot stand with one foot in and the other out. You cannot walk down both roads because they are divergent paths. You must set your face toward Jesus And fight with every fiber of your being this fight that is difficult in order to draw close to him. The only other option is to give yourself over to sin and reject him in his way. But there's no middle ground for the Christian. Now verse 3 begins by pointing out that we once walked that road of destruction in our past. But now... We who call ourselves Christians and are devoted to Jesus, we should look back on that time as wasted time. Have you ever heard the testimony of a brother or sister in Christ who became a believer late in life? 
from time to time, they will express to you the deep sorrow and sadness and regret that they have, that they didn't become a follower of Jesus sooner. When Peter says that the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, he's telling us that we shouldn't look back on our life prior to Christ with a kind of nostalgia. When sin was our master, we shouldn't look back on those days as if those were the good old days, right? When I was doing all the wild and crazy things. No, we should feel profound sadness that we were missing out on life and joy and freedom in Christ. You know, I was just back in Wheaton, which is the town that I grew up in. And uh, if you've ever moved away from the place you grew up, if you go back, you get that feeling of nostalgia, don't you? You go back to the, I don't know, the trees you used to climb and the fields you used to play tag in and, you know, the, the downtown area where you made memories with your friends. Being in Wheaton brought back all of those fond memories of good times of my childhood. But that is not how we as Christians should feel about our prior life in sin, is it? That time is past. It, it was sufficient for doing the things of the flesh. We should look back at that life and rejoice that God has rescued us out of that. That we're no longer blind to the path of destruction that we once walked so willingly. We should look back actually with disgust and disappointment that we sacrificed so much of ourselves to those empty, worthless idols that stole from us and burdened us with shame. We should look back at that old life and we should remember that truly sin has nothing to offer us in light of the greater joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Living a life of sin is what Gentiles do, not what we as Christians do. Now, maybe we should define that word, Gentile. Maybe you're not real familiar with that word. In the Old Testament, you really had two groups of people. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit as we've made our way through 1 Peter. It was months ago now, but you really have two groups of people in the Old Testament framework. You had the Jews who were the people of God who sought to love and honor and seek God. At least that's what they were supposed to be doing. And you had the Gentiles, who was basically everybody else who didn't give a rip about Yahweh, the God of Israel. They did not worship God. And so Peter is borrowing this word from sort of the Old Testament framework, and he's now applying it to those who are basically non-Christians. Gentiles in this verse means these are people who don't seek to honor God. They don't know Jesus. They're driven by the desires of the flesh. They have no regard for what pleases God. What do they seek? Well, they seek only pleasure. The pleasures of the flesh found in things like drunkenness and orgies and lawlessness. These are people who have no regard for what pleases God and no constraints whatsoever on their desires. They feel something, they want it, they seek it, they take it. That old saying, well, maybe it's not that old, depending on which generation you're part of, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. These are people with no moral foundation. They're fornicators. They're driven by greed and sensuality and selfishness. They want power and self-indulgence. They want to feel good. 
And so in seeking that good feeling, they'll do whatever's necessary. They'll chase whatever shiny thing offers the next fix. They're driven by hedonism, the most base of human desires. And this is why our culture now has an entire month called Pride. Given over to the worship of sexuality, the worship of things that are contrary to God's commands, and it's brazenly called pride, which isn't that hilarious? Like, that itself is a sin. And look, I can say all of these things, and maybe you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, yeah, that pride month and those people and all those terrible things that they do, right? It's easy to fall into that temptation for us to become proud as we look upon these sin-loving Gentiles and say, shame on them for the way they live lives that dishonor God. But we should also pity these people. Their gods are so small. What they offer is so insignificant. Their lives are driven by nothing more than petty pleasure. And we should be humbled as we think about the state of rebellion that they're in because where would we be apart from grace? We too would be people pursuing sensuality and pleasures of the flesh. And more and more rebellion against God. Apart from God's grace, we would be just like those people. Who do we think we are to be proud and look upon them with arrogance and self-righteousness? And actually, it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because why does Peter even have to warn us against these things? Don't you see? We could look down on these people who live in this way and think that we're better than them, and yet Peter has to warn us because we are still, in some regard, the kind of people who would easily fall into chasing the passions of the flesh. Even us who believe we need to be warned not to fall into these temptations. As much as we want to walk the road of righteousness because the Spirit of God lives in us and has made us alive, don't we feel the temptation day by day to turn around and go back to the life that we once lived to fall into those passions of the flesh? And what can keep us from that? Nothing except clinging to the feet of Jesus. Like Hebrews said, fixing our eyes upon him. Continuing to remain in his grace and his mercy. Shunning our pride in our own efforts and looking only to his mercy. The Gentiles, the non-Christians we know, they need God's grace to rescue them out of debauchery. And you and I, the Christians that we know, We need God's grace to keep us in obedience and faithfulness. But look, maybe there's someone in the room who hears this list of sensuality that Peter gives us and you think, what's the big deal, man? Like, why is the Bible so against these kinds of things? What's so bad about this? Like, Who cares if people want to go and enjoy the things they enjoy in Pride Month and stuff like that? Why does God oppose sensuality and why does he hate our passions so much and what's so bad about seeking pleasure? I think many people, actually I know many people because I've heard them say it, have looked at the list 
of these vices that Peter mentions and other lists like it in the Bible, and they've wondered why God hates fun so much. They see God as this cosmic cop waiting around the next corner, just eager to bust the person that he sees, having a little too much fun on the highway of life. And in thinking about it this way, we see just how corrupt and deceitful the passions are. That they've twisted the thinking of men to see the world this way. The passions of the flesh have flipped everything upside down so that the world calls what is good evil and what is evil good. And the world wonders at a God who would prohibit anything from the freedom of man that man might be prohibited from chasing everything that he desires. But the reason why God prohibits these kinds of things, why God commands his people to abstain from drunkenness and orgies and the passions of the flesh, lawless idolatry and sensuality, is because the all-wise creator God made and designed the human creature and he knows us in and out. He made us from nothing. He formed us from the dust of the earth. He placed within us the breath of life. And he knows what is good and right for us. As our Heavenly Father, he cares about what is good for us in the same way that an earthly father would care about what is good for his own human children. The same way that a heavenly father would look at his two-year-old and make certain prohibitions for that child because the, heaven, or the earthly father knows what is good for his kid. In other words, what I'm saying is that the commands that God gives to us are not just arbitrary. Like God didn't just wake up one day and like spin a wheel of morality and be like, yeah, we'll pick that and that and that and you can't do this and you should do that. No, the limits that God gives are prudence their wisdom, and it expresses for us God's loving care. That's why he says no to some things. Actually, the illustration of a two-year-old is the perfect illustration of our will in opposition to the will of God. Remember verse 2, that we would follow God's will? It's often, I mean, if you've had kids, okay, then you know. This is going to be very familiar. It's often right around the age of two, that a child begins to comprehend the power that they have in exercising their own will in the world. They have, they realize, a certain and also profound amount of power. And that's why as they begin to realize this in real time, they begin to see that their mouth can actually respond to their mom and say, no, their hand can respond and see that thing up on the counter that they were prohibited from touching and they can, they can reach it and take it if they want. Their feet, they realize, can carry them in any direction they want to go, not just the direction mom and dad says they must go. We often call it the terrible twos because that's the time when a child learns the power of their will over the world. And so they begin to throw the broccoli on the floor and they throw a fit and scream until they get ice cream. 
Or they grab that knife that was left on the counter. Or maybe even more so, they learn the power of hitting their little brother. They begin to run away from their parents and out into the danger of the busy street. And so the the fact of the matter is, without the prohibitions that a parent places upon their two-year-old, their two-year-old wouldn't last a week in the wild on their own. It would be like that, and they would move towards self-destruction. The untamed will is the vehicle that takes each of us to our own demise. And so the parental prohibitions placed upon a two-year-old are literally life-saving. And so don't you see the parental prohibitions that God, our Heavenly Father, in love places upon us, the creatures that he made, are not there because he hates it when we have fun. He gives us these prohibitions precisely because he, lo- he loves us. And he knows what an abuser and deceiver and liar sin is. That it does not have our best interests at heart. All of the pleasures of the human flesh that whisper and invite and entice us, God knows they're poison to the human soul. And so he prohibits them because he does not want us to be destroyed by them. God prohibits the paths that he knows will lead us not towards life and freedom and joy, but towards death and slavery and destruction. Now, isn't it amazing that God does not automatically just remove all of these dangerous things from reality? Like, if he wanted, he could just take away all of the sensuality of the flesh, but he has not chosen to do that. He has not chosen to remove from you the responsibility that you have to go towards him and not towards sin. Think about the amount of will and power that God has given to you in that decision. Instead, God simply commands or invites, gives you the option to follow him, to seek to do his will. You are actually free, as terrifying as this is, you are free in this life and in this world to choose for yourself debauchery if that's what you want. God has given you that choice. But you won't find life or freedom there. And God instead then invites you into a partnership with him and his Holy Spirit that you might exercise self-control and grow up into maturity to be like the true man, Jesus Christ, to do what is good and right and to find life and freedom in him. And oh, it is life. And oh, it is freedom. The commands he gives are not burdensome. But God does not automatically eliminate all the bad options because he wants you to be a stout-hearted, virtuous person who would choose of your own free will to do what is good and honorable in his eyes instead of choosing evil. Now, he does command what is right, and he expects it, and he calls us towards eternal things, and he empowers us with his spirit, and he makes us wise with his word, and he encourages us with his community of love. And so he's given us the resources that we need to live a life of righteousness and holiness in his eyes. And what does the flesh offer instead? 
Nothing. Just emptiness. A deeper and deeper pit, the more you shovel into it, just the deeper and more empty it feels. And here again is that fork in the road. One path leads to life and righteousness and joy forevermore. And one path leads to misery and ruin and death. You can gain the world and have all the pleasure that it offers, but you will lose your soul. Or you can give all of the pleasure up and you can save your soul by having Christ instead. Now, of course, our decision, from, our decision to abstain from uh, drinking parties and sexual perversion and all the rotten desires of the flesh, that decision is going to be met with absolute hatred from a world that loves to revel in sin. The pressure from the world to conform to the sinful desires, it is extreme, isn't it? I mean, it is an all-pervasive, crushing pressure to just join in the fun. Don't you ever, like, look around? At the, I mean, Dwight, you were talking about it, right? Don't you ever look around at the world and the state that it's in? And maybe every generation has done this, but don't you ever look around and be like, how did we get here? How in the world did we get here? How did our country become a place where a whole month is dedicated to celebrating perversion and rebellion, it's a, a rebellion against God? How did we become a people where debauchery defines us? Well, if you were reading 1 Peter carefully when I read it, then maybe you should realize you actually shouldn't be surprised. Because this is not a cultural phenomenon, my friends. Peter was addressing this 2,000 years ago, before the internet, before all of the modern technology that we have that has fed this so rampantly. And the reason is because it's not culture that entices people to sin. I mean, it does to some degree. But the only reason why culture succeeds in enticing people to sin is because lurking inside of you is the desire to sin already. The problem, as I have said many times here at Maricopa Springs, is not out there. The problem is not on the internet, it's not on your phone, it's not in Pride Month, it's not in politics. The problem is in here. The problem is lurking in you. The problem is that your heart desires what is contrary to God. The reason the culture can entice people is because it's already drawing on what is latent inside of you. And that's why Peter tells us in verse 4, that when we choose a different path, the world is shocked and surprised. Basically, what's wrong with you that you wouldn't fulfill every desire of your sinful flesh? And notice the escalation in verse 4, where it moves from shock that you would live that way to utter disdain that you would make that choice. Christians are maligned and despised because we choose the way of Jesus rather than the way of debauchery and sin. And this is the nature of rebellion. I mean, if you've ever seen a mob, the only way to be safe in the mob is to join the mob. Because as soon as the mob identifies that you are standing outside of it and you are not part of it, it will come to destroy you. And when the world is hostile to us, it can be very tempting to not only engage in 
the sin and debauchery that they're engaging in. But the other temptation is then to uh, begin to respond to their maligning and their hatred with cursing and hatred, right? This is why Jesus has to give us the teaching where he says, love your enemies. Because the world hates us, we are then drawn into the temptation to hate in response. But the way of Jesus is when they malign and they curse, we bless. When they hate and they seek to destroy, we love and we seek to serve. See, we cannot allow the the sin of pride and hatred to sneak in the side door while we are fixing our eyes in defense against the sins of debauchery, the sins of lust, the sins of sensuality. Because arrogance and hatred are contrary to the way of Jesus just as much as any sinful passion. So be on your guard there as well. And the truth is, we don't really need to get caught up in thinking about how other people live their lives, right? Do you find that temptation? You look at the world and you want to stand in judgment on them? Peter tells us in verse 5, that's already taken care of. The world and its debauchery will have to give an account before the judge of all the earth. And so you don't need to be that judge. I mean, we do need to say to the world, you're in danger. And the way that you're living your life will lead to destruction. We do need to say that. We do need to boldly tell people that they need to repent of their sin. But after that, we can simply rest in the fact that every person will give an account to the just and righteous God of all the earth. There will be a reckoning. But that part is God's business. It's not our business. Our business is to focus on Christ and to seek to do what pleases him, to do his will. And let us remember in that that we have a will that is our power that we must exercise over our actions to choose to do what is good so that we might bring our lives into conformity with Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, you heard it, verses 1, and th- 1 through 3. Let me read it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, The daily battle against sin in our own lives is enough work without getting caught up in thinking about how everybody else is living their life. The affairs of other people and their sin issues, again, we need to call them to repentance and faith in Jesus, but don't you have enough work to do in keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus? For our part, our instructions are to cast off the sin present in our lives, to run the race with endurance, to look to Jesus Christ, to not grow weary, to be stout-hearted. And isn't that enough work to do without us heaping on that the additional work of being judgmental? Don't misunderstand. There is a judge. It's just not you.
And he will judge every person, including you, with impartiality and with holiness. Now, notice that Peter says in verse 5 that God is ready to judge. God is ready to judge. You know, the world goes about its business seeking all of its sinful pleasures of the flesh without any consideration that right around the corner is judgment. God is ready. And that judgment is coming soon. The only reason it delays right now is because God is merciful. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has judgment not yet come? Only because God is merciful and he desires that more people would turn to him in faith and repentance. And so here's an honest question for you. When that day of judgment comes, and it is coming soon, and you must give an account for your life, what will you say on that day? What evidence will you bring before the court, before the high king of heaven, the righteous judge of all the earth, what will you say to him on that day as evidence of your innocence or your worthiness to not be destroyed for the rebellion that you have engaged in? What will you say? What defense will you make to the creator God who has a rightful place to rule on the throne of your heart but who you have rebelled against, what will you say to him on that day when you are judged? Well, there's only one defense that will save your soul from execution on the day of judgment. One defense. It is to claim that Jesus, God's own son, already died to pay the price for your rebellion. His blood is your salvation His righteousness is the covering of your shame. The only account that will matter when you stand before the judge of all the earth will be to denounce yourself and say, woe is me, and say, I have no hope except the blood of Christ, and to throw yourself upon the feet of Jesus and accept his mercy. And if you're not ready for that day, and you walked in here this morning prepared to make some lame excuse for your rebellion before the God who knows all things on the day of judgment, then I beg you today to simply repent and place your trust in him. Leave that path, that direction that leads to self-destruction and turn towards Christ and find freedom and hope and peace. God is ready to judge you. He is ready now. Are you ready to face that judgment? Now finally, verse 6, we're told why the gospel is preached. The verse says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Uh, this is the part of the sermon where it's like difficult to like make it to the finish line, especially when I'm going to talk about grammar. But let's do it anyway, Okay. This is a grammatically strange verse. It raises a couple of questions. Is Peter saying that those who have heard the gospel 
uh, heard it after they died? Is that what he means? And what does it mean to be judged in the flesh? Okay, I think there are a few options here, but I'm going to spare you all the options for the sake of time. I'll just give you my perspective here. I believe Peter is saying, he's referring to when the gospel was preached to people who were living, and they believed it, but they still died. That's kind of problematic, actually, unless you understand that physical death is God's judgment upon mankind for the sin of Adam. See, you are still going to be judged in the flesh. On the day that you die, that is a form of judgment. It is God's judgment upon mankind for Adam's sin. So to be judged in the flesh is to die, and all people will die, therefore all people will be judged in the flesh. But there's a greater and even more terrible judgment that comes after that. That's the judgment where you must stand before God and give an account for your life. Not for what Adam did, but for what you have done. And the outcome of that judgment will either be that two path, right? Either spiritual life or spiritual death. If you are in Christ, you will live. If you are apart from Christ, you will die. And so what Peter's saying here is that even though people who received the gospel still died. They were judged in the flesh because all people will die like Adam died. Receiving the gospel means that they will live spiritually, live forever, like God himself lives forever. In other words, the gospel does not save from physical death. All of us will die. But the gospel has been preached so that those who believe might escape the second death spiritual death. And now we come full circle, and I'll close with this, I promise. I would ask you, what kind of life will that spiritual life, like God's life, be? What would it look like? What kind of life is it? Well, it will be just like God's life, a life of holiness and righteousness And if that is to be our eternal life, yet to come, then what would prevent us, if we're in the gospel now, from living that kind of life now? Do you see? Many people live as Christians waiting for the resurrection, but the resurrection reality is already ours in Christ Jesus through the Spirit of God in us. Go back to verses 1 through 3. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So Peter has now come full circle and he says, think about your life forever in God. That's your life now. The gospel has been preached so that we might escape judgment, that is true, but also so that we might live each day now for the will of God. 